0: Like, if dear Mr. Watterson had an ending, in honor of the walk, what documentary would you want retold as a fiction film?
1: I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles, because it could be an excellent Zodiac-style investigative thriller, and then they could just make up an actual ending.
2: And because you saw it at Sundance
1: Yes, I did, with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Hey, it's me, David the
0: Seven, uh, the Sundance Select Food Documentary in Search of General So... I'm not sure how, but I would watch the shit out of it.
2: I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with 1994's Theremin, an electronic odyssey. Mostly because I want a Leon Theremin document or a, a Leon Theremin biopic where he falls in love with Claire Rockmore. Oh.
3: And I'm David Ehrlich. I was also going to go with Theremin. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, in light of uh, recent events, I will go with Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And by recent events, I mean that I had sushi for lunch today.
2: Oh, I thought something
3: happened to Jiro. I almost (laughs) lost (laughs) my sushi. No, and I would love to see that origin story.
0: Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This
3: is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through
0: fine. I'm coming through fine
1: too, eh? Good, then. Well,
3: then, as you say, we're both coming
1: through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then. And I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great
0: to be fine. It's, it's a podcast.
1: podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 89 for Tuesday, September 29th. It's 2015 and it is still the year of our time, Lord Dr. Emmett Brown, especially as we get closer to October 21st, 2015, the day that Marty McFly goes in the future. Uh, before we get started, David, here we have a really good review.
3: We do. Uh, one of my favorites by yeah, Gray. David was so
2: excited for this review. He was tweeting about the podcast. It's very rare.
3: Whoa! <laughs> takes only once in a Burr. blood moon
2: do I tweet <laughs> about
3: the podcast. But <laughs> this review prompts me to do so by Gray Lindsay. The uh, the headline is home run, grand slam, touchdown, hole in one. Which the sports uh, is that sports? Yeah, I don't know what that a means. A lot of different sports wedged into one. They say. Don't tell my boss, but I listen to this podcast at work. I'm not an air traffic controller or anything like that, so don't worry. I'm not <laughs> endangering people's lives. And even if that was the case, I'd listen anyway. That's wow. how much I enjoy y'all's free freewheeling conversations about movies, TV, and all that jazz. If someone asked me to come up with a favorite personality, I'd scoff at whomever was asking such a silly question and respectfully request that they pipe down. You are all <laughs> integral to this show, and don't forget it. Oh. With that said... David Ehrlich is my favorite because he is essentially the Donald Trump of this show. Wow. Donald Trump actually knew a thing or two about what he was saying and loved broadcast news a lot. You never know what David is going to say about a movie which is both refreshing and jolting, like being thrown into a pool in the middle of winter. However, the show would not work without Katie, Patches, Dave, and Joanna. Shout out to Joanna. Without them, the show would be like an all-Angelica episode of Rugrats. If you're wondering who is who, Patches is Tommy, Katie is both Phil and Dill, Dave is Chucky, and Joanna is Susie, because she's not in every episode. As a movie lover, an amateur screenwriter, and a person who listens to things, I can recommend this podcast to anyone who enjoys listening to smart people discussing TV and film. Keep up the good work and shine on, you crazy bunch of diamonds. Wow. That was poetry. That was good. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Phil and Dill. I am so touched. <laughs> wait, which wait. one is Phil? I think it's Dill, the And
0: then Dill was the baby. So I think Phil she's was Phil was definitely the Lowe. baby. Wait, yeah,
1: she's still so and Wait, so wait, who are the twins? Phil, Phil and Lou. Okay, so she said it right, right?
2: No, no, no Dill f- f- is she's the baby. She's saying you're both one of the twins and Dill, Tommy's little brother that they introduced later in the series.
1: I'm interested to hear if that is what the reviewer intended. Please write back.
2: And more stuff. reviews where you just compare us to different quartets of.
1: Yeah, we really, we really are suckers for when you tell us, uh, you know, which. Uh, <laughs> tell us more I learn I a sense. lot
2: about myself.
3: And I, I want to know which character from Doug I am.
1: <laughs> I want to know which Beatle we all are. So uh, please keep leaving us reviews. Obviously, they bring us immense joy. I'm gonna end up
0: being Ringo. God damn it. <laughs>
3: Week's tidbit: We are going to be discussing a little television show I like to call Project Greenlight. Uh, exactly. Other produced... people like to call it that too. As it well, HBO I mean, even likes what to, they call, like it to call it. Uh, executive produced by Ben, the new Matt Batman yeah. Affleck, and Matt. I cannot stop putting my foot in my mouth. Apparently, Damon. Uh, Matt Damon. Yes, um, and we will leave the various controversies. Involving him uh, to the sidelines, although at least one does Will pertain we? to... Well, maybe not. And one, one of them is them. in
1: the first episode. One of them is
3: in the pilot of... Uh, or not the pilot, rather, but the season premiere uh, for the first season in, what, like a decade Yep. of Project Greenlight? For those of you who don't know, Project Greenlight is uh, a rather brilliant HBO reality show that Started back when most of you were babies. When you were little zygotes. There were three seasons. Uh, they produced it. It's a reality show about the making of a movie. Uh, It produced such classics as The Battle of Shaker Heights, uh, the other one that I cannot remember, and Feast.
1: Stolen Summer was one of them, right? That was
3: the first first one, one, yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, they are all based on contests. They have some very arbitrary rules by which people from all over the country make short films that really, realistically, can only convey so much of their talent or lack thereof, and yada, 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 they wind up with someone. Um, They used to have a screenwriter and a director because they would cause all sorts of conflict with one another, as you might imagine. This year, for the first season in a very, very long time, uh, they have uh, just picked a director. He happens to be somebody who was a classmate of mine who I did not really know personally, but would see in the hallways all the time. Uh it was named Jason Mann. Uh, it was a classmate of him at film at School.
2: No wonder he's so abrasive. He's a Columbia student. This it's makes
3: exactly. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Sick There's inside e- New York joke. His, everything about his demeanor. Um and for anyone who's I seen like the show, it. you'll know what I mean. This guy has balls. I mean, he, yeah. uh, he definitely has some talent, but they when they hired him, the first thing that he did upon winning this contest and and being introduced to Matt and Ben and um and being announced as the winner is demand that they fire the screenwriter who wrote the script that the project is going to be based on. Um, and he, to his incredible credit, by the end of the second episode, got them to agree to film a script that he wrote independently, a feature based on one of his own shorts, uh, which they have now extensively rewrote. Yeah, which should
2: be noted, with the writer he wanted to fire overhauled his script basically in like a week's time. So the people he wanted to reject...
3: Or is it the writer from from, uh, from... Uh, Boys Don't Cry.
2: No, no, no. The writer who overhauled the script with him is the director, writer-director of Stolen Summer who was the original. He wrote Hall oh, Pass for the Fairly Brothers, mm, which is why he's, he came on to rewrite this really broad comedy which they were trying to get people to direct. Because
3: that guy's so doofy. I'm like, there's no way he wrote Boys Don't Cry.
2: No, absolutely not. He, <laughs> he's a Farley Brothers guy now after first season of Project Greenlight, and he, he's the one this guy Jason wanted to fire, and yet he's also the guy who backed him up like to scrap the script that they were originally going to make and make jason's original movie and then basically kick that movie in the ass to actually get it made
3: right so So the guys take a step back (laughs) this is a fascinating show for obvious reasons because they ostensibly take you into the production process of uh, an independent film they're shooting on a three million dollar budget they're currently fighting where we are to shoot on film versus digital. The director's really pushing for film, obviously. It's not as if HBO is really pushing for film and the director is saying, no, digital. (laughs) Um, And you sort of get to see in all the production meetings um, behind the scenes how these things come together. It is uh, intrinsically, as anyone who's ever been through the production process on a film, feature, or short, uh, a dramatic process. Lots of personalities clashing up against one another. Lots of fun things that that happen out of the blue and cause everyone to react. Um, What is interesting if not inevitable about it is that in order to make sure that they manufacture that drama there are very arbitrary demands on this project ordinarily if you are getting a three million dollar film made under the aegis of hbo they're not going to say you have only three weeks of prep to make this movie uh because otherwise you are going to scrap it you have to, it's february 14th and you have to shoot by march 2nd um that is just not even if it's going to be the obvious of well, They wouldn't get the, film. the chance
2: to make the movie. The whole point is they need to come out of the... I mean, it's it's the demands of the television show, not just the drama right, of right, the television exactly. show. They so, need a film at the end of it.
3: Right. So, But like it's still, that the uh, when you don't have to make a reality show around the movie you're making, it can be a different vibe. Uh, and that's part of it. It's a lesson about the documentary process. I don't know. They,
2: have you worked on a feature film before, David?
3: Uh, I have on a roundabout way, but uh, I've All worked right. also on enough short films, the to know that and and certainly know having
2: around. worked on some feature films you don't just scrap it you do have to meet your deadlines like this and it doesn't no no, no, no. i'm not saying you
3: don't have to meet your deadlines i'm saying that usually the deadline is not three weeks of pre-production on a major movie just well, because they have the a tv producer, show to air
2: even the producer he's working with this woman effie brown who produced your white people says i mean she yeah she admits in a in a perfect world her indie films get 10 weeks of prep but it's not completely unheard of, uh, probably for a $3 million movie, maybe, but for low-budget cinema, it's it's not that crazy if you're flexible, if you're ready to make power through it. And this guy, Jason, clearly never made a movie because he's sticking to his guns in a very serious way. I
3: think you are mistaken if you think that the go, 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 we only have three weeks to do this attitude is not a byproduct of them trying to manufacture a television.
2: Definitely a little bit. Definitely, I will...
3: Um, I think that HBO, if they really cared about this project in and of itself, and it was like their main priority, they would uh, find a way to to make it work. But um, it does make for compelling television. I do wish that there were an hour every week rather than the thirty to thirty-five minutes uh, that they've been airing. Um, but they, they certainly picked the right personality for the job. The Columbia is an through and through. Um, <laughs> Which it's an hour? No, it's not. It's definitely not. Really? It's I think
0: it's like forty forty minutes max.
3: It's never longer than forty minutes. Only the pilot was forty. Um, the next two have been thirty-five. Yeah. Um, and Maybe it just feels that way. <laughs> yeah, it Whoa. may feel uh, no. I mean, I think it's really compelling, but as artificial as it can be. Uh, but
1: can we talk uh, yeah. about the Matt Damon thing that everyone got mad about? Well, I think yeah, it I mean, is I'd, interesting I'd rather, as a microcosm for the show. I'd rather the, in the one episode that I
3: watched use that to springboard to a conversation about Effie Brown. Um, who was well, involved you should in probably incident. set up exactly yes. what happened. So, as so people, you can speak more. And as, for people who are really outraged by this, uh, maybe they're better to lead in the conversation. I mean, like, I, I think, I tend to think, uh, and I, but I what my, was the
1: conversation?
3: Well, I'll get there. But my, my opinions about this were sort of set before Matt Damon decided to stick his foot in his mouth again today or be misconstrued or whatever you want to say. But during the audition process, he was saying that. The diversity, or it was presented as though, as though he were saying, the diversity of the creative team that they brought in was not important. That the, the diversity of the project should be reflected in the casting rather than all the way through. And Effie Brown, who um, is A, and most importantly, a sane person, is one of the producers, and B, also mm. happens to be a person of color, um, thought that that was wrong and, and made sure that Matt Damon, who she is clearly not afraid of, uh, knew that. Now I happen to think that Matt Damon as the executive producer of the show as someone who is going to be involved and in it's uh, as busy as the schedule is and the shape that the show takes uh, took one for the team there and may have you know fumbled his words uh, and and made an argument. Mm. I'm giving uh, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here but that um, reality television is crafted to, to look a certain way. It's not as if anybody at HBO they was left, it That's, yeah, they yes. left it in they left it in at the very least they left it in. But Effie Brown, who is uh, the producer who was on the other side of that, um, I think, and I was having an argument about this on Twitter with uh, with the MEND director, John McGarry. If you haven't seen the MEND, by the way, it's fantastic. Uh, also a Columbia student, former Columbia student, John McGarry. Um, I've been saying that I think that the this show is sort of an infomercial for Effie Brown's talents as a producer, because in my limited experience on set, I think that her demeanor, her... Uh, ability to, to, to be honest and do what's in the – work within the constraints to not live in an ideal world but, but do what's best for the director given the pressures that they're under has been very impressive and John McGarry felt otherwise and think that she's horrible. Um, I think really probably somewhere in the middle but I, and I think that as the I, I do agree with John that um, that they haven't shown her coming up with any very creative solutions for problems that they faced. Um, about going slightly over budget well but she's shooting.
2: pragmatic also i mean she's very pragmatic uh you know in the in the third episode it comes up like oh maybe they, we can shoot this movie out of los angeles and get tax breaks the problem is and uh, i do tend to to back effie brown when The the mansplaining complaints of uh, the mentors on the show, not just Matt Damon or Ben Affleck, but the Fairley Brothers, too, especially in the third episode. I mean, when these men, they're not quite gaslighting her, but they're really taking their mentor positions their positions in Hollywood for granted you know like oh let's let's entertain this guy's idea of shooting on film Ben affleck loves shooting on film let's shoot on film it's so great like and and if if she was a great producer she would fight for you I think that's really insulting to her and the battles that she's going through on this show and they, the show does a pretty good job of of you know, make an example. Like she is fighting a good fight. She wants to get this movie made. She's really excited about his script and she wants to do it on this budget. She has, you know, I saw our friend Peter Scareto slash film kind of making fun of Effie Brown for over and over saying how many films she's produced. But you know what? Damn it. She's produced a lot of low budget films, independent films. She knows how it has to get done. And she's the only one there. With that cap on, everyone else is a big dreamer who wants to make movies and loves the process. And like, isn't it beautiful that we can take someone from obscurity and make a great movie? No, Effie Brown wants to make a motherfucking movie. So let's make it. And it's awesome. She's so fiery and so empowering and wants to kick this artist in the ass. And show him how movies can be made. Because it is a it is a business in the end. But art and commerce can come together as one. And you can make this guy's vision a reality. It's cool. Yeah, I
3: and mean, then I think to speak to, to John's perspective, he's looking for her to maybe lean a little bit harder on the side of art than she has been seen doing so far. Um, then maybe once they start production, she will... Uh She wants player, to get but... like
2: great actors and she wants to find a sweet location and she wants to for him to see to like, because I, I think what filmmaking is, is it's not necessarily compromise, but grafting vision onto reality, you need to be able to shoot this movie in a real location, it can't just be your dream, it can't come together. You know exactly the way you want it. It's just impossible. So you have to be pragmatic at times and and see how art and pragmatism come together. And
3: yeah, if I were watching that and I was an indie filmmaker and I wanted to hire a producer who I knew was going to get shit done, <laughs> I mean I wouldn't think twice about it. Although if you were willing to deign my project with her with her involvement, um, you know I I would feel more comfortable and confident that my movie would actually.
2: Get to the finish line if she to, were involved. To go back to the, the very first gripe that you didn't really want to confront, which was Matt Damon talking about diversity. There was a pair of people, uh, uh, a guy from Vietnam and this white gal who, you know, they were talking about the characters in this original broad script being kind of offensive and kind of checking, you know, what? what does this woman do? Why is this a black prostitute being slapped by her white pimp? Like, do we need this in movies? And that's the team that she went to defense for which I thought was really cool. It wasn't just Damon saying that diversity, like, we don't need diversity. We need the best filmmakers. She made a reasoned case. So, like, she's making all these arguments against these mansplaining guys, and she's coming out on top because, frankly, she's right. Like, you need... This guy, Jason, is the worst kind of like white artsy filmmaker, in my opinion. Uh, and, and he needs to get his ass kicked by reality in so many different ways. And one of them is to consider like human beings in part of this process. And I don't think Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were there in the beginning and maybe they will be in the end, but I think there was actual reason to complain about that original Damon statement.
3: Yeah. I mean, who knows who, maybe they come out, uh, swinging in, in defense of diversity by the end of the show, which wrapped forever ago. And, uh, and ride to the you know champion diverse voice. Who knows? I mean, this could all be a long con of them setting the seeds for a storyline that they eventually pay off in a way that everyone benefits from. But the point is, and I'm not saying that Matt Damon threw himself uh, on the on you know in the line of fire in order to engineer this, but uh, an important conversation did take place on that stage. It showed the ignorance of someone who uh, people typically tend to think is a progressive liberal. Mountain or someone who's been
1: in the industry long enough that you would yeah. hope you would know better.
3: Yeah, and I think that it all uh, it all contributed to a good conversation. And that's some, if not his intention, that's at least some consolation that i can take away from the experience.
1: But what I thought uh, was so interesting about that scene in this, I've only watched the first episode, but it said so much about when you were like, how did no one know that casting white actors in Exodus was a terrible idea? How did no one see this one glaring issue? And you watch that conversation, and you're like, yeah. So many people genuinely, genuinely believe that diversity issues can be fixed entirely in casting, like someone who's been working as long as Matt Damon believes that. And I found that really informative in terms of, you know, how starry eyed people can get. And the fact that you're saying that the people behind the show aren't talking about the actual realities of producing films, but are like about the ideals behind it. Like it seems like it's kind of inadvertently revealing all of these biases by showing all these guys just mouthing off.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that it doesn't speak well to Matt Damon necessarily, but it does speak well to the virtues of the show, um, mm. which is that it, it uh, whether directly or indirectly, uh, brings these things to light in a way that shows, uh, you know, other shows can't. And I appreciate them for including that because they could have easily cut around right. that because it made their movie star executive producer look bad.
2: Um, yeah, I'm and- hoping Team Stuck on You really comes back. <laughs>
3: Um. Anyway, so that's Project Greenlight. It airs on HBO on Sunday nights. Uh, they're just getting the rolling into the part of the story where they start shooting the movie.
2: And I think they have five episodes left, and then probably the the movie airs. And then, yeah, well, the movie. All assuming the talk...
3: they complete it, which I <laughs> I know for a fact that they did. Uh, they will air it on HBO. Wait. Uh, going For today's new segment, I, if there's anything that anybody knows about me, it's that I love the Oscars.
0: Yes. I cannot...
3: You really do. We only get, talk about them when you bring them up. I cannot get enough of them. I just like... <laughs> February... 28th I am whatever the fuck day after the Oscars are I'm just like what's gonna win next year
2: (laughs) you're already (laughs) thinking of yeah you're already thinking of February
3: 2017 he's waiting
1: (laughs) for Star Wars episode 8 to win this picture (laughs) yeah
3: so uh, in in that spirit uh, and also because I had it in my mind to email Katie earlier this weekend bet her cold hard human cash uh, (laughs) something Oscar related uh, that I wanted to see uh, based on what little information we have now, I wanted us all to venture a guess as to what we Wait, think will win. You are not going to should...
2: tell us what the no, bet is. Yeah, David, you know, I think you. I'll tell should, you. Uh... I'll tell
3: you after the segment, or I'll, I mean, I'll say it on the air. But after we all. Make all, right, it, all right, all right, all um, right. Where we uh, each make our guess. So what's today? September twenty um, something.
1: Twenty. It is airs on September 29th.
3: All right, so it's September 29th. We're all guessing what we think will win Best Picture. Uh, and then we can all look back and laugh at ourselves in February, if not sooner. Um,
2: but really, and... you're, you're doing this so that if you get it right, you can say, told you so.
1: I mean, this is why he bet me cold, hard human cash. Yes, the,
3: I, and I gave Katie such great, such great odds. Yeah. Uh, Do just, you want to just have have
1: introduce feelings. your pick by explaining what the bet was? Okay.
3: So I, I – why not? Um, <laughs> and and I, I have to stress, I'm not Jeff Wells here. I'm not betting with my heart. I am trying to be analytical about this. Uh, and I uh, told Katie, the bet with Katie, I, I believe, was that if Spotlight wins Best Picture, which I believe it will, uh, she has to give me $50. And Ooh. if any other movie, any other movie, wins Best Picture, and again, this includes major films that have not screened yet. I And will also give her, Inside Out. And also Inside Out. I will give her $25. Wow. Yeah. Um, so the odds are very much in her favor. But. The, I have a feeling Katniss. that Spotlight will be every a lot of voters' second favorite choice and uh, will argo its way to Best Picture.
2: <laughs> it's very possible. That's such
3: a backhanded insult. Yeah.
1: It is a very believable scenario. Uh, the reason I bet against it is that, not because I didn't like Spotlight, but I, uh, I don't know. I, I see what you mean about the second favorite movie, but I'm feeling risky. I kind of wanted to go with something that's off in the future, and I'm putting my money on Joy. Ugh. I mean, my imaginary money. I didn't make a bet wow. about Joy Wedding because... I've not seen this movie. As far as I know, no one has. But I think there's a lot of dude-heavy movies coming out this fall. You might have heard me make this prediction on a a podcast called Little Gold Men, which is worth you all listening to, that is even more into the Oscars than David Ehrlich is. Um, Not
3: possible. Not possible.
1: I think the uh, boy movies are going to cancel each other out. I think David R. Russell's constant presence at the Oscars is going to pay off. And if the movie is any good, it will win Best Picture.
2: Yes, but see, I keep telling you (laughs) <laughs> there's a big wga kerfuffle
1: there is i read about it. i read joy. about it yes
2: it's already erupting it's I gonna mean, go d- full lava wga it's start kerfuffle- singing and that didn't and keep 12
1: years a slave from winning best picture
2: yeah but this is a bigger deal because annie mamolo is that how you pronounce her last name mamolo so. uh who wrote bridesmaids wrote this screenplay pa- it was her passion project and now she's been kind of shafted by David O. Russell, who took over and wanted to rewrite everything. They which won't. He
1: has done on like all of his movies.
2: Sure, parts. but Fox Search, like, won't even call this a biopic, which it was at some point—a biopic it's just big of a woman actually. who created a miracle. What, what did she create? Mira- the miracle Mira- mop. Miracle mop. Yes. So they won't even know. Yeah, it's 20th Century Fox, and they won't even refer to it as a biopic. It's it's going to get sucked up in this weird controversy, and everyone wants Annie Mumolo to, to win, not David O. Russell. There's backlash. Which is why I'm going with Bridge of Spies, a movie I have not seen. Um, you know, I was kinda... Richard
1: Lawson made this prediction on a podcast called Little Gold Men that you could listen to.
2: Oh my word! <laughs> uh, Bridge of Spies. Have heard, I've heard. I know a few people who have seen the film, and I'm kind of and are kind of like in the middle on it. That it might be a little too stodgy. It's not necessarily Lincoln. It's a little more conventional. That maybe a little more Unbroken. Both written Bridge of Spies and Unbroken, both written by the Coen Brothers. For some reason, um, but Burgess buys a Spielberg. Tanks. It's, it's political. It's big. It's epic. I don't know. It's it's uh, and it's and it and it feels like Oscar bait. Oh, what a bad word! But something like The Revenant, which is going to come out the gates swinging, just feels so grimy. Whereas. Uh, Bridge of Spies feels elegant in the way that should please uh, voters of all ages. So I'm going with Bridge of Spies.
0: And with that, I'm taking The Revenant
2: because
0: I think it's a Western bro time. (laughs) And uh, I think Star Wars is going to slap everybody in the face. And because The Revenant expands wide.
2: Early next year, it's going to be on the tip of everyone's mind. I feel like Hateful Eight could also... Maybe those two will cancel each other out with all the Western stuff.
1: That's my theory, which is how Joy swoops in.
2: But Hateful it's Eight, true. Hateful Eight, I feel like, if it's a really great ensemble piece, could actually be Tarantino's moment. I don't know.
3: Huh? I don't know. Look at me. The only person who's predicting a movie that we've actually seen.
2: Yep.
1: Yeah. We're all I don't about. know. We
2: just didn't see it out of Toronto. Spotlight is very good, but it's not... It's not classic. I
1: we will have a time to talk Yeah,
2: about I would
3: I would be more on. confident if it won the People's Choice Award at Toronto, which it's not. But uh,
1: I would uh, I also wanted to predict Star Wars just to troll patches, but
3: uh <laughs> Boo.
2: I don't Maybe. know. Maybe who I, Maybe. I can't say.
0: It's obviously from the trailer going to win best picture patches. <laughs> no <laughs>
3: <laughs> BB eight for best actor. Shut
0: up. <laughs> <laughs> living in let me tell you and it's a world a man could eat at all when things that big that should be small who can tell what magic spells we'll be doing for us and i'm giving up my life to this world
1: only to be told
3: for a segment three tonight I'm talking about a film a film i like to call The Walk. <laughs>
1: A film that we will be reviewing uh, yes. later this week, so let's not <laughs> right. spoil. Right, so we're gonna
3: be day. we're gonna be very careful about not. Uh, well, we'll probably reveal what we think about it in roundabout ways, but we're not just gonna attack it head on. Um, also, but, spoiler alert: he doesn't die on the tightrope. Yeah, uh, but the walk. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's Robert Zemeckis's new piece. <laughs> sorry, it's his new movie. It's, um, <laughs> you it's, suck. It's. He's uh, very much in flight mode. It's about. If, 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 not at if,
2: all not wait. at Shh. all it
3: goes back to our lightning round question about making uh narrative films of documentaries it is not literally a remake of man on wire because it's based on philippe Petit, who walks between the two the man, the wire walker who walked between the uh trade the world trade hours thank you um He, uh, it's allegedly based on his book, but yes, it's very much feels like a remake of, uh, Man on Wire. Um, and the, the big sell here is that, uh, you know, people we will talk about the first hour of it probably in greater detail later, but the, the walk itself is meant to be a very, uh, sensory oriented 3d IMAX. You are there suffering vertigo vomiting on the floor in front of you experience uh the the camera they have created a i wouldn't say overwhelmingly uh believable but i certainly believed the scale of it this this sort of cg um landscape with the twin towers and new york around it and the sun coming up on that fateful august morning um and uh it's 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 as close uh, in a movie theater by conventional means, and that definition is being stretched all the time, uh, as I think one could expect to get uh, to a feeling of of being there and and sensing just how completely bug shit insane it is to step over the precipice of one of those buildings and walk between the two of them. Um, And the reason I want to talk about that is uh, it's twofold. One. Because it's, along with The Martian uh, and some other films that Patches had referenced earlier and sure could bring up again, uh, is a big 3D spectacle that is not an action movie. I mean, you could, you could argue that it's action, him walking on the tightrope. It's certainly a in your throat moment, but uh, it's not action the way that we tend to think about it with violence and good guys versus bad guys. And The Martian is, is much the same way. It's really just about a man... Uh, dealing with his own challenges, um, and uh, the other was was just talking about how far how far uh, cinema as we know it as a uh, linear experience that's sort of projected at you and you experience uh, is it can get to that that sense of you are there virtual reality or whether there is a stopping point where there's just a big gulf between what that can accomplish and where virtual reality takes over because. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't get to do this for myself. But outside of the press screening uh, the, of the walk on Saturday morning, they had a little virtual virtual reality setup where people could don the glasses, the Oculus Rift-like glasses, uh, and enter a simulation where they, seeing things from their own POV, were essentially in Philippe Petit's partially bleeding shoes uh, on on a rope. Uh, or a wire rather, walking across the World Trade Center. Um, and apparently, from the reports I saw on Twitter of people who did it, it was like very, very intense. And people were afraid to even take that first step. Uh, and those who did, um, their character in the simulation died instantly. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: um, but uh, uh, which I was sure is, is frightening as well that first moment when he starts to fall and look up at the towers. But
2: Oh
1: my god, know. my, my palms are sweating thinking about that. <laughs> I can't
2: imagine it visualizes that if you fall. No I don't way. No. Um,
1: Dave, I want to hear from you first because your friend and a uh, former collaborator is working on fiction virtual reality
2: now. Yeah, yeah, for Google, she
0: works. Uh, she's the lead filmmaker for her the, their jump camera, which basically takes. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not exactly sure how many it is off the top of my head, but like greater than fifteen cameras and stitches them all together through an algorithm to create 360 videos. So she like goes all over the this world. Is for Google. Yeah, she does it for Google. Um, Google's slowly going to open up the VR you know, world. So they already have the Google Cardboard where you could fold your phone into like a cardboard headset to make VR with their YouTube app. And then Jump is also going to be able to basically make the cameras going to allow filmmakers to make 3D content for when all these Headsets come out for consumer. Some of them level already. Pricing.
2: Some of them already are. I, I saw that Casey Neistat, this you know, video viral video maker guy, um, posted 360 video to YouTube. He must have some sort of rig that allows him to do that. But you yeah. can actually scroll around this life. You know, you know, you're not watching it on a headset, but you can click back and forth and see the full 360 perspective in the con- like the frame of a YouTube video.
0: Oh yeah, there's some ways already to do it, which is why Facebook was able to unveil the capability of having 3D video on their platform uh, because enough of these cameras and or methodologies for creating it still sort of exist. Um, but it's sort of all going to become, like I think there's a $99 VR headset that's going to go on sale this Christmas, so it's all going to become... Wow consumer technology and they're starting to experiment with ways to uh put it into you know everyday experiences so like why watch the football game on your small rectangular television when you could you know have it ported to your oculus rift and you know you don't have to but don't have to bother grandma and yet it feels like you're in the stadium those sort of things but in terms of like visual storytelling uh i haven't seen the walk uh but i've seen i don't know Robert Zemeckis' attempts at 3D cinema previously. And it yeah. sounds like even with this falling thing, um, like, like with 3D and any sort of uh, upgrade to the way we process storytelling visually, there's like a whole new set of things. Um, I've, there was a VR experience on display this year's E3 where you were tied to a chair in like a room with a demon in it. And uh, apparently the very end of the uh, experience, the demon grabs your head and just pulls it back. So suddenly you're looking straight up. And the act of experiencing that change in perspective uh, without your head motivating it after being in a uh, 3D environment, you had the capability to look around after like five minutes, Mm. ended up being like super disorienting. But because this was a horror experience, it was something you have. Whereas I've talked to other VR developers who have said that, like, if you're creating an artificial experience, if you have somebody fall too much visually, that you could make them, like, vomit in the middle of your experience. So there's definitely a threshold in that. So, like, we had to learn frame rates for holding shots for, you know, 3D the first time around. So there's going to be a whole new set about how you could use VR to motivate, like, a, a the reaction that you want your audience to have. And we're, like, just starting to touch... Uh, the technological barriers of that, I think.
2: You know, it's really it, insane. <laughs> I think I think most people who see the walk will agree that if it was just the walk part of it, that it might be a much much better experience. Um, which is not viable, I suppose, in in the Hollywood model. You can't just release a twenty thirty minute movie uh, this IMAX experience, or can you? You know, I've I've been reading. Captain EO about.
0: seems to have recouped its money and.: Well,
2: it's funny you say that. Like, yes, exactly. Obviously, those are confined to theme parks. But I was reading about kind of the advent of IMAX back in the early 70s when they were first installing permanent IMAX screens. And um, I don't know why I was doing this, but I was looking up the box office winners of the, of the 1970s. And in 1976, the second highest grossing movie of that year was this film To Fly, which is a documentary. Uh, If you've ever been to like Smithsonian or if you've been to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, their IMAX screens, it's one of these like nature documentary docs. It's just about the visceral experience of shooting something with a large format camera and then putting it up on this giant screen. So this was to fly is about the history of flight from hot air balloons through the 20th century, the space missions. And it it was actually financed, uh, filmed by the National Air and Space Museum. And then film and projected in their IMAX theater, and it made this nineteen seventy six made one hundred and twenty million dollars. What twenty seven well, minutes long?
3: Over how much time?
2: I mean, probably many months. Or but years, can you imagine? Probably, right? I don't know if it's. I don't know if it would be.
1: I mean, IMAX movies like played in natural history museums
2: for years. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. It might be decades. It might be. But, like, you could probably install something like The Walk permanently all over the country or tour with it forever, even if it was 20 minutes and have tons of people. Uh, you could certainly
3: it. install it above Katie's office at the World, the Freedom Tower now. Oh,
1: yeah, and scare the shit out of a Well, body. that's actually
2: true. Your, your elevators at the Freedom Tower project the history yeah. of the of the skyline. Is that not, right?
1: not the ones in my office, but the ones up to oh. the top. Yeah, I haven't seen them.
2: In person. You, at, you go to that building every day. You haven't been to the uh, top yet?
1: No, it costs a ton of money.
2: Oh well, fair. Um, You're gonna pass a pass for for I, get,
1: I get a, <laughs> a one time pass and I haven't used it yet. I'm I'm waiting on the right day. I, I guess I'm
2: just saying, are we done with? I mean, is VR going to take over these kind of visceral experiences, or is there room for IMAX? And there's a room to go in another direction that we haven't since the 70s, where like where you would tour something at the World's Fair. I mean, I guess VR is kind of taking that space now because it can be toured very easily. It can be packed up in a bag and shipped to movie theaters, just like the one David saw outside of his wall screening. Well,
1: but it sounds like, from what Dave is saying about how it's going to be consumer available, like they won't be touring it for long. It's just going to be something you have. I mean, Facebook bought Oculus Rift on the bet that virtual reality headsets are going to be a thing that you have in your home pretty regularly.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd be be very interested to hear what Dave and uh, his friend Jess have to say. About this, but my takeaway from from something like The Walk is that there is a pretty finite limit as to what you can do in theaters with this. Um, And because of the demands of the theatrical experience and telling a compelling story, it may not be the best venue for it to really grow and prosper. I think that things that are a little bit more uh, individual.
2: Wait, I it mean, be it was, yeah, I was about to say it being what? The, it's
3: not a communal. Ex- I mean, it sounds like VR is not really a communal experience.
2: It's right, no, exactly. That's how I felt doing all those VR experiences at Sundance, which I think I talked about eons ago during our Sundance episode, but like it's a very lonely experience, you know, doing the wild VR experience where you its just you and Reese Witherspoon walking around the woods. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But part of the appeal of the Walk and and even The Martian, like watching him roam Mars, is kind of being on the on the, you know to use overused uh, phrases here on the edge of your seat. Where's all mm-hmm. the water
3: though? The air where's is all, all the taking- water. <laughs>
2: There, people are actually making that argument against the Martian now. Well, that I mean I Scott uh.
0: I don't think this is a, re- a replacement technique. I mean, I've, I mean, I've seen some weird things where it's like you know they're virtual theaters. So like if, if this is the only thing that exists in our houses in the future, it's basically like Back to the Future Part Two, like that little headset the, yeah. the young Marty yeah. wears, where you will just you will go into a virtual theater where your friends will also be and like avatar form, and you guys could all watch the same movie in the same theater. I mean, I don't know... I mean, this is Ready
1: Player One as well.
0: Yeah, basically. I just don't know how lonely that is in comparison to watching a movie. Like, it's, you know, great to see a horror movie with a certain audience and whatnot, but I don't think that the VR is coming along to be a replacement technology for that. I think what's ultimately going to be exciting about it is just, like, completely new experiences. So, like, even as we get further into... Movies that are like pre conceptualized this way, as long as somebody saves the data, like whatever replaces, you know, Blu rays in the future, like maybe you could walk into like Avatar 3 and like direct a scene on your own from your like living room because just Mm -hmm. everything will exist as a file. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that's the directorial, authorial vision is how the camera moves through the performances.
2: I do, I do wonder if VR will shape. the the theatrical movies that we see if they'll one day get ported to vr if they'll be created and optimized for vr i was just talking to someone uh we saw the trailer for angry birds the movie come out last (laughs) week and someone made a very astute comment that why why is angry birds the movie an animated film a film that can do pretty much anything why is every scene kind of a medium shot up on characters, single shots, cutting back and forth of people talking. Um, And I think the answer is pretty clear. It's because kids watch movies on iPads. And Hmm. that film is optimized for iPad viewing or Netflix viewing for the rest of time. Well,
3: especially a movie that's based on an app. Yeah. No, sure. uh, No, exactly. No, (laughs) exactly.
2: Exactly. But that is the give and take. That's where the technology that it will be on eventually comes first and then it'll play in movie theaters because it should, and it's going to make a hundred million dollars because everyone's going to see it for some reason. But I wonder if VR could have that play if there's enough fluidity between theatrical movies and VR experiences that, they would be optimized that way. Well,
1: I was thinking about how we've said in the past that Michael Bay says he's not competing with other movies. He's competing with theme parks. Like he's trying to make something that is enough of a spectacle to get people to come to a movie theater. And that seems like the most obvious thing that VR is going to replace. Like why have a transformers movie with a story when you can just have a, a theme park ride version of it that is available to everybody.
0: Yeah. And I mean yeah. the, that, that ride right now is a little more than screens showing you things as it's moving you around. Yeah. You're like wearing 3d glasses. And, like, a lot of theme parks going that direction because you can, uh, you know, repurpose the actual space for whatever comes up next. But, like I was saying with movies, those files all exist somewhere. Like, Cedar Point, uh, the roller coaster theme park in Ohio, just put up, you could pre-ride their, like, th- a roller coaster that they're building. And all they did is just put a virtual camera on the model that they have to make anyway just to figure out how to construct this thing. And you realize that that offers, like, added value to all these things that are being produced by computers anyway. I mean, I've yeah. I've seen virtual reality programs that'll let you look at a house that, instead of going to an open house. So it's like there are all these weird practical uses for it. I don't know where we're going to end up using it for entertainment, but... When, when it does, they're going to have a weird new visual language for it. I don't think it's going to replace. It's like, what if you could watch The Walk from any angle at any time? It's like you're basically still going to be wanting to focus on the narrative.
3: Yeah, I mean, hmm. I think that The Walk is... I mean, my takeaway from The Walk is that... Uh, and, and I'll try to steer this in a way that isn't you know, a critical analysis of the film, <laughs> but an experiential one, is that it should have been a Broadway musical. Uh, because I I just think that there's a very you are there quality to it, which um,
2: I don't know it, if I feel that way at many Broadway musicals, so I'm well, not sure. No, if that mean, is maybe, a maybe it comparison. Is
3: more my my response to the uh, maybe you're maybe you're thinking of a a Cirque du Soleil Vegas. No, I'm show. thinking of a broad. I mean, the way that the film is structured, um, and the tone of it, I think, is Broadway all the way, and I think that it would make uh, you can make a fortune. You I mean, wrote some songs. It's a coup. It's a coup, and and <laughs> you have the actors string up the wire over the audience during the course of every performance, and then walk it at the end. You make billions. Anyway, um,
2: someone loved Spider-Man. Turn off the dark. Yeah, <laughs> someone,
3: uh, thousands you know, probably. <laughs> but I do think that the, and I don't know if I can make this distinction articulately, but that the walk is a, isn't really about you are there so much as like that's where he was like i get a much better sense i think of what it was like to be philippe Petit on that morning um then i do like putting myself in his shoes if that makes any sense uh i, I think that they, it's not quite the virtual reality experience where i feel I like i'm up on that wire
2: i don't know if there are any pov shots no well
3: <laughs> i'm trying really? to think there might be one or two um but it is, it's is—it's like, okay, I, I, I understand the perspective. I understand now in a more visceral way than I did previously what it must have looked like to stand on that precipice and, and like um, how thick or thin that wire was and et cetera. But it didn't really make me feel like I was up there. It really made me just feel like how crazy was it that he thought that he could just walk across it once uh, and attract any sort of audience anyway um, but uh, I think that it's still there there's may not, the ceiling may be low on what the possibilities of VR stuff is in theaters Uh, we we'll see
1: does it for today's fighting in the war room we'll be back on Friday with a review of The Walk what's it say
3: in their best Say they Walk Walk they Walk they Walk uh, so do I do you? not say the word death never
1: so there's going to be some great bad French accents ahead so please listen to that and in the oui. meantime tell the people who you are
3: Je
2: m'appelle Matt Patches <laughs> and I'm the senior writer for Esquire.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches and we have a website where you can write all sorts of mean French comments or (laughs) lively French exclamations, fightinginthewarroom.com.
3: I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the uh, associate film editor of Time at New York and the editor of Larger Little White Lies. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room.
0: I'm Dave Gonzalez, spell my first name, D-A-7-E, that's also my Twitter handle. Uh, This month I'm going to pay really close attention to my stats on geek.com, so go there and read something that you like, and I will actually notice, it'll be like voting with your eyes. Uh, I also do a podcast about comics on this feed, called The Thought Bubble, so you can find all my podcasting, fightinginthewarroom.com, like Patcha said, best website in the world.
1: And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com, where I have launched a new podcast. You might've heard me mention it earlier in the show, uh, it's a partnership with Panoply. It's called little gold men. It's a, uh, it comes out every two weeks and it's about award season and I like it so far. Uh, so if you, uh, hear, hear me talking about the Oscars and wish it could be a whole podcast, you should subscribe to that. You can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and all of us at F I T W R where we'll talk to each other, uh, Receive your angry comments about how David didn't like The Martian. And then uh, you can also answer this week's lightning round question,
0: which was... In honor of The Walk, what documentary would you want retold as a fiction film?
1: Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.